you have a Bible this morning, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 5. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's going to be on page 942. 942. Romans chapter 5. I guess we should start off by saying Happy New Year. This is the first time we've been together since uh, the new year. And as we begin a new year together, uh, we will be observing the Lord's table uh, this morning. And in preparation of that, we want to um, help our hearts get there, help our hearts to, to think more deeply about what communion is saying. And so in order to do that, we'll be looking at Romans chapter 5. Uh, this letter, or this epistle, the, the book of Romans, is a letter uh, or an epistle. It's written by the Apostle Paul, written to uh, the church in Rome, thus Romans, and was written during his third missionary journey while he was in Corinth. So if you would track with the book of Acts, when Paul was in Corinth on his third missionary journey, this is when he would have been writing uh, the, the, the letter to the church in Rome. Uh, Paul saw Rome as a central uh, location for missionary efforts into Spain. And so he's writing to this church, while he's in Corinth, he's writing to this church in Rome, uh, thinking about the expansion of the gospel into other, other areas. And Rome would be a, a notable, important place uh, for the, the gospel to go out from, even further from where it started. The church in Rome was founded after Pentecost. So in Acts chapter 2, uh, we had the Holy Spirit coming. And after that is when the church in Rome would have been established. It was comprised predominantly of, of Gentile members, and later there would have certainly been Jews as well. But this letter may have been, may have been uh, written due to conflict between Gentiles and Jews within the church, as it would have originally began with just Gentiles. So Paul addresses here uh, in, in the book of Romans, not every doctrine. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't talk about every doctrine in these 16 chapters. Uh, really what he did was, was he, he uh, identified doctrines uh, that should be and doctrines to be agreed upon, and namely the gospel. Uh, Romans is, is all about the gospel and its practical implications. And, and why would he choose the gospel? It's because the gospel is what unites us. That is the, the foundation for believers to gather together is that we believe in the gospel. There's one gospel. There's one true gospel. And Paul went to great lengths in the book of Romans to express that, to talk about it, to talk about the different uh, parts or uh, aspects of it. By way of summary, the, bo the book of Romans covers a spectrum of topics related to the gospel of God's grace. In chapters 1 through 3, we find uh, Paul talking about condemnation. He's talking about the sinfulness of mankind. And that because of our sinfulness, because we are sinners, we are condemned. We, we have no hope. We are justly and rightly condemned before God. But then in chapters 4 and 5, we, we learn about justification or, or salvation. Uh, that, that we can be saved. While chapters 6 through 8 deal with sanctification. Once someone becomes a believer, how they grow. They were, now, now they're dead to sin. Now they're alive in Christ. And what does that look like in the life of a Christian? Chapters 9 through 12 deal with the restoration of Israel. While chapters 12 through 16 
uh, deal with the applications of what Paul has said about the gospel in the preceding chapters. For our time this morning, we'll be looking at chapter 5. You heard the verses read already, verses 6 through 11. After addressing justification in chapter 4, chapter 5 begins in verses 1 through 5 by telling us that those who are justified, those who have been made right with God, those who have been declared righteous, those have, have, have peace with God, verse 1 tells us, tells us that we have access into grace, that we have hope, we have hope through Christ, which is confirmed with God pouring out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That's verses 1 through 5. So moving then into verses 6 through 11, Paul addresses or states three reasons for the results of, or the results of, excuse me, three reasons or results of Christ's atoning death for believers. Why does this matter? What does it matter what Christ has done? And he gives three things. The assurance of God's love for believers. The certainty of reconciliation with God for believers. And the response of believers of joy in God for what he has done. So let's start first with the love of God. Look at verses 6 through 8 again. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now before we get too much further into this passage, I I do want to point out uh, the phrase in verse 6. For while we were still weak, and then it says this, at the right time. At the right time. The death of Jesus was at the right time. Which means to say it was appointed. It was planned. We just got done celebrating Christmas, which we remember was also Not only promised, but planned. Galatians chapter 4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. It was predicted, yes, but it was planned. We see also here that his death was planned. God was sovereign over the birth, life, and death of Jesus. He planned it all. And not only that, not only is it it Jesus' life, and death that were planned. But your life and your death is planned as well. I mean, that God is sovereign over all of it. Psalm chapter 139 says, For you formed my inward parts, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and intricately woven in the depths of the earth. God made us. And then what? Verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. God not only planned our birth, but he planned our days. God is sovereign over all of it. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, It is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So not only is our life planned, but so is our death appointed. God appoints that once, that man will die once, and after that 
comes judgment. God's plans are perfect. They're rightly timed. And they are all for good. Whenever you come to the scriptures and you see the sovereignty of God expressed, we would do well, you would do well to note it, to emphasize it. That's why we're doing it this morning. To remind ourselves, to rehearse again, to reinforce the truth that God is control, in control of all things. Not, not just in the life of Jesus, not just in the characters of the Bible, but in your life, in my life, in the world, in America, uh, across the globe. God is in control. We use this word sovereignty to, to describe just that. And it's the truth. It's a truth to know. It's a truth to know now so that when difficulty comes, we are well prepared. I have a dear friend from college who recently unexpectedly lost his father. He died very unexpectedly. and went very, very quickly. And yet his family had, he and his family, have a very good understanding and grasp of the sovereignty of God. And even through their grief, which they are grieving, they can trust that somehow, someway, God knows what he's doing. That God is in control. That his days, his father's days were appointed. They were planned. His death was determined. Charles Haddon Spurgeon writes it this way, the sovereignty of God is the pillow which the child of God rests his head at night, giving him perfect peace. The sovereignty of God is the pillow which the child of God rests his head at night, giving him perfect peace. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Here in chapter 5, God planned it. God planned the death of Christ. He planned that Christ would die for sinners. He was sovereign over it all. Well, in verses 6 through 8, Paul then identifies not only that God planned it, but he identifies the costs of God's gift of love and the unworthiness of the recipients. So the, cost, the costliness of, of the gift. Um, the demonstration of, of God's love, how was it expressed? It was expressed or it was proven in the death of Jesus. Look back at verse 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time, God, Christ died for the ungodly. Look down to verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, we'll remember that, that Jesus took on a human form. He became man. He became flesh. That's the word incarnation. To incarnate means to become flesh. Jesus took on the likeness of man. He lived as a man. He died the real death, the literal physical death of a man. He sacrificed his life. Sacrificing your life for another person is really, right, it's the ultimate act of love. And here God gives the assurance of his love by giving himself. That is giving his son to die, to die for us. Look at, again, verses 6 and 8. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Then in verse 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That word for is on behalf of or for the sake of. 
that Jesus was the substitute for us. He stood in our place. He died our death. On our behalf, he paid for our sins. This is what we call atonement. Jesus' death was the atonement for our sins. John Piper defines atonement as the work of God in Christ on the cross in which he completed the work of his perfectly righteous life, canceled the debt of our sin, appeased his holy wrath against us, and won for us all the benefits of salvation. That's what Jesus did. So when it says that Christ died for us, it's all of those things. It's that he lived the perfect life. He canceled our debt. He appeased the wrath. He won for us all the benefits of salvation in this life and in the next. The prophet Isaiah says in chapter 53 that this one who was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, or Romans chapter 4 verse 25, who was delivered up for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. Death. The death of his son was the cost of God demonstrating his love. The the cost of God showing to you and me his love was the death of his son. Don't miss the costliness of the gift of God's love. Secondly, we see the unworthiness of the recipients. So not only is there a cost to the gift, but who is the gift for? There are four different words in this this, uh, section of Scripture that talk about for whom Christ died. We see two of them in verse 6, weak and ungodly. While we were still weak, that is, while we were still powerless, helpless, unable, without strength, morally feeble, impotent, Christ died for who? The ungodly. That's the godless. Those who are unholy, unrighteous, wicked, irreverence. Verse 8 says he died for sinners, those who were sinful. Or one writer says those who departed from the way of righteousness. And then in verse 9, those same people are called enemies, the, the opposition, the adversaries of God, hostile to God. This is the description of for whom Christ died. You'll also notice throughout these verses that there's a plural pronoun the, the plural pronouns are used, we, us, and our. So when Paul is writing, when we were still weak, he died for us. What is he saying? He's identifying with the reader. And who is the reader? The Christians at Rome, by extension, Christians today. So what Paul is saying is these who are, who are weak and ungodly and sinner and enemies are the description of anyone who knows Christ before they met Christ. The point is this, that we didn't deserve the cost. We, didn't, we weren't worth it in the sense. We, we were still enemies of God. We were worth it in God's eyes, but we were unworthy, unworthy of such kindness. That's what makes it grace. Paul's point seems clear. Those for whom Christ died were utterly unworthy of such a costly gift. John Stott writes, the unique majesty of God's love lies in the combination of three factors. Namely, that when Christ died for us, God was giving himself even to the horrors of sin-bearing death on the cross and doing so for his undeserving enemies. The cost was the death of his son. The recipients were his enemies. 
The love of God was displayed for all to see as Jesus died for sinners. He died for sinners. He didn't die because he knew you, you were good. He didn't die because he, you, 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 were, you were, had the uh, capacity for goodness. He died while you were still weak, while we were ungodly, while we were sinners, and while we were his enemies. Well, verse 7, Paul contrasts verse 7 with verse 8. Look at verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. Okay, so he's stating an idea here. And then verse 8 is the, the contrast. But... God shows his love for us in that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. What's Paul saying? Paul's basically saying someone might die for a good person, possibly for a righteous person. But God did something even greater than that, something more unbelievable than that. He died for sinners. He didn't die for good people. He didn't die for righteous people. He didn't die for the people who had it all together. What did Jesus say? I, I didn't come for the unrighteous. I didn't come for the person who, who, was, who wasn't well. I came for the sick. I came for the unrighteous. That's exactly what verse 8 tells us. The motive of God's gift was God's love, not anyone's perceived goodness. The motive of God doing what he did was out of his own love. And this is true love, right? That's what love is. That's what grace is. So much of what we think of as love today is, is transactional, right? It's if, if you love me, I'll love you. If you stop loving me, I'll stop loving you. That's not what we see in Romans chapter 5. God's love was based on his love for us, not on our love for him. One writer says, God's love is not sentimental, but action-oriented and constant. Right? This love is unconditional. It's self-sacrificial. It's derived in the will. It's not in response to anyone else's love. God loves because God loves. And if you're a Christian today, God loves you, and you can, be, you can do nothing about it. You can do nothing about it. You can't change it. Because it's determined by him, not by you. The cross proves that God loves. It gives to us assurance of his love, and it removes all doubts for the Christian of whether or not God loves us. Romans chapter 8, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Jesus died to demonstrate God's love. Well, Paul continues to explain the results or the reasons for the death of Christ in verses 9 and 10. Look at verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we now, we, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved? Shall we be saved by his life? There's a couple words here that we're going to put some definition to. One is justified and one is reconciled. Justified is a legal word to describe the Christian standing before God in Christ. It is a declaration by God 
of righteousness. Now, this is not to say when we say someone is justified, we mean to say, we do not mean to say that they are righteous. That's not what justification means. Justification means they are declared righteous, which is something very different. You and I are not righteous on our own, but we are declared righteous. We are, we, we are seen as righteous. Why? Because God sees us through Christ. There's a great description of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, when it tells us that, that he who knew no sin became sin so that we would become the righteousness of God. And it's what Martin Luther calls the great exchange, where God takes upon himself our sin and in place of our sin gives to us the righteousness of Christ, that we are seen by God through the righteousness of Christ. That is justification. Reconciliation, or to be reconciled. One author, one um, uh, one writer says it this way, to reestablish, reconciled means to reestablish proper, friendly, interpersonal relations after these have been disrupted or broken. We might know what that is like in life. Biblically, how we understand that is that sin has alienated man from God, but through the death of Christ, man is saved and made at peace with God by grace through faith. This is reconciliation, which Paul is talking about. That we, we have been enemies of God, at odds with God, and by grace, God has reconciled us to himself through Christ. Paul once again highlights the cost of this work. Look at verse 9. Therefore, since we have been justified, how? By his blood. By his blood. Later or earlier in the book of Romans Paul writes this, for whom God put forward, talking about Jesus, as a propitiation by his blood. Look at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we are reconciled to God by the death of his son. When he uses blood and he uses death, he's talking about the same thing. He's talking about the death of Christ. Or as uh, John MacArthur says, the violent substitutionary death, as he writes, blood and death. The enemies of God here are mercifully reconciled to God by Christ. They are made at peace with God. The war is over. That's what Paul is saying. The reconciliation, the hostility, the separation between God and man has been erased through Christ. Now man is at peace with God. How? Because of Christ. Through Christ. God did this. All this is the action of God. We do not reconcile ourselves. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 says, All this from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Which means to say that we are to go to communicate how you can be reconciled to God. How the world can be reconciled to God. How the world can be made at peace with God. That's the ministry of the Christian. It is God who saves. It is God who saves us from his own wrath, through his own son, taking on that wrath in the death on the cross for us. And still, and still, we doubt the love of God. God. 
still we think maybe I'm not good enough for the love of God? Well, it seems to, to indicate here in these texts that we are not good enough for the love of God. Why? Because we are weak. We are ungodly. We are enemies. We are sinners. But that's exactly who God came to love. That's exactly for whom Jesus died. So if you find yourself in one of those categories, I'm weak, I'm powerless, I'm a sinner, then you're in the exact right category to receive the love of God. Paul talks more about the extent of this love in verses 9 and 10 with this phrase, much more. Look at it uh, with me before we look at it. Uh, Much more here. We see it twice, and it's an argument. We could call it the the how much more argument. It's it's something like, if this is true, how much more is this true? Right? That's the argument. It's it's a from a lesser to a greater argument. Or Tim Hughes says, from light to heavy. And look at verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Warren Wearsby summarizes this in this way. He writes, If God saved us when we were his enemies, surely he will keep on saving us now that we are his children. If he saved us when we were his enemies, how much more will he keep us? If he he justified us, how much more will he continue to keep us safe in Christ? If he has the power to save, then he has the power to keep. If he has the power to save, he has the power to keep. Some of us have have grown up in a time, or or maybe you've been to churches, that that tell you somehow that you have to keep your salvation. John MacArthur, and I love this quote, he says it this way, if you could lose your salvation, you would. You would lose it. The reality is, what are you basing your salvation in? Is it in your faith? Is it in your capacity? Good luck with that. Or is it in the work of Christ? The finished work of Christ. That Christ has paid it all. It is finished. And our response is to believe. John Stott, we'll get there in a second. Salvation and reconciliation that we see here is presented both in the present and in the future. Excuse me, in the past and the future. Uh, Take verse 9 again. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Verse 10 has a similar thing. So it's looking backwards and saying, this is what God did, and this is what he's going to do. It's not not only what he has done, but what he's going to do. And so what what we come to understand is that, that our salvation is both a past and a future. We have been saved. Christian, you have been saved. Yes and amen. But the truth is that we have not experienced everything about our salvation. We haven't haven't had the fullness of our salvation quite yet. Uh, John Stott explains it this way. We have been saved through Christ from the guilt of our sin and from the judgment of God upon them. But we have not yet been delivered from the indwelling sin and given new bodies in the new world. So the best is yet to come, basically. 
God has done that. God has justified us. How much more will we be saved in the future? But what God has already done should then lead us to rejoice. Look at verse 11. And we see the third result or reason for the death of Christ. More than that, we also rejoice in God through the Lord, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The work of Christ not only assures us of God's love, not only reconciles us to God, but is cause for our rejoicing in God. Now the word here rejoicing is the same word boast, boasting. Now if you know your Bible, that, that word isn't always presented in a positive uh, in a positive way. And actually, actually, Paul forbids boasting in, in two particular places in Romans 3 and 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But the boasting here is not boasting in ourselves. Of course, what does he say? He says, rejoicing in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That the boasting or the rejoicing is in God, in what God has done. What is that? Reconciling to himself through his son sinners who are under his wrath. This reconciliation is cause for rejoicing. Rejoicing in the Lord. And once again, consider it. Remember that you were once an enemy. You were once under the wrath of God. Christian, you were once under the wrath of God. It is good for Christians to remember what it's like to not be a believer. If you have the capacity to remember what it was like when you didn't know Christ. Now, some of you got saved at a young age, you might not have those kind of uh, experiences or those kind of memories. But it is good for us to remember that we were once an enemy of God. And in Christ, God has reconciled us to himself. We have been made at peace with God. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like laying your head on your pillow at night, knowing that you're at peace with God. You may not be at peace in this world. There may be conflicts that are unavoidable in this world interpersonally, but you can know when you lay your head on your pillow at night that you are at peace with God. The Gospel of John tells us that we can be called the friends of God. The atonement of Christ leaves no room for boasting in ourselves. As Jonathan Edwards says, the only thing, the only thing that we bring to salvation is the sin that made it necessary. So there's no boasting here. There's no, look at me, I'm reconciled to God. Look how, look how good I am. No, no, no. It's, it's recognizing that this is the work of God on my behalf through his son. And thanks be to God for Jesus' death on our behalf. Without which we would still be dead in our trespasses and sins, separated from God with no hope. So what is the response this morning to this, to this news, to, to these truths let me give you three. One, be assured of God's love. Christian, be assured of God's love. God does not love you because you did everything right this week. It's not why he loves you. He doesn't love you because of your resume. He doesn't love you because you came to church today. He loves you in Christ. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, we are accepted how? In the beloved. Not in our works. In the beloved. You are loved today by God because of Christ. 
Maybe you wonder today, does God love me? Can God love me? Maybe you've experienced other people who've told you that they love you and they they fail to, to follow through. Maybe you've been hurt by that. Maybe you can't imagine or believe that God's love is different. Man is, man is a failure. We, we falter. We, we change. But God never changes. His love never fails. Psalm chapter 136, verse 1. His steadfast love endures forever. That was written a long time ago. But if it's true, then it's true today too, isn't it? Forever. His steadfast love Endures. Romans chapter 5 points us to the death of Christ. It gives Christians great assurance not to doubt God's love for them. Secondly, be reconciled to God. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Be reconciled to God. Now, God does the reconciling, but what is our response? Our, our, our job is to respond to God, to respond to Him. The assurance of God's love is for those who've received his love, those who've believed on him, sinners who have turned to Christ and believed on him by faith. And so the question is, have you done that? Have you been reconciled to God? Have you come to God recognizing that you're you're his enemy, that you're a sinner, and your sin has put you at odds with God, and yet Christ has come to die for you, to pay for your sin so that you can be reconciled. You can be made at peace with God. Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Do you know God as Father? Have you been made at peace with God? And if you have, are you walking in fellowship with him? Are you walking in obedience with him? One commentator writes this, if God sacrificed his son for our sins, why are so many of us so reluctant to sacrifice our sins for his son? The response to this love, the response to this reconciliation is that I love him in return. I love him more than my sin. I'm willing to give it all up. And finally, how should we respond? Well, we should respond as verse 11 tells us, to rejoice, to rejoice in God, to rejoice and be glad. God's love, his his saving work leads us to rejoicing. Let me just share a few verses from Psalm. Psalm chapter 13, verse 5. I'll rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love. Psalm 31, 17. I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Psalm 90, verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. God in grace has demonstrated his steadfast love in the death of Christ, so rejoice. God has sent his son for us, for our sins, and for our salvation. There's no greater news. And this morning as we come to the table, we see it again, don't we? We see it this one whose body was pierced and whose blood was shed. We can remember this morning the work of Jesus with thankfulness, the cost of salvation, the cost of reconciliation, that is the death of Christ for unworthy sinners like you and me. And so if you've received God's love, if you've been reconciled to God, then we invite you to partake of the cup and of the bread. But if you have not, if you've not come to Christ, if you do not know Jesus as your Savior, 
if you've never admitted that you're a sinner and put your faith completely in Christ alone, then we ask for you to, to not take of the cup or of the bread. Don't receive the elements. Instead, don't receive these elements that, that point to Jesus. Instead, receive Jesus himself. Instead of receiving a, a cup that reminds us of his blood and a, and a piece of bread that reminds us of his body, receive the one through whom you can have life. You can have the forgiveness of sins, the hope of heaven, through whom you can be reconciled to God. Receive him in repentance and faith. 